0: Verse 1 of chapter 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard. In the street, a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and the Spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes To bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they spring forth. I proclaim them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and those who dwell on them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements where Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord. And declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Amen. Amen. We're talking about the Lord's servant this morning. And I want to speak of this passage uh, in three parts. First of all, I want us to consider from verses One through four, the compassion of the Messiah, the compassion of the Messiah foretold by Isaiah. Then in verse five to ten, I want us to consider the power and the light of the Messiah, the power and the light of the Messiah. And then finally, I would have us from verse 10 to 13 consider the response to the Messiah, the response to the Messiah. The compassion of the Messiah, the power and light of the Messiah and the response to the Messiah. Now, again, congregation, remember that Isaiah spoke 700 years. His ministry was uh, seven centuries uh, before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, Jesus is not yet here in the earth, boys and girls. He uh, he is still the eternal son with the father in eternity and glory. Uh, but he is not when Isaiah writes this, he has not yet come into the world yet. So you have to understand that what Isaiah is speaking about, he is talking about Jesus, who is still to come in the future from the perspective of Isaiah. The difficulty for us when we deal with passages like this is that we look at Christ from a different perspective. We look at Christ as those who come after Jesus. So we're studying somebody who is writing of Christ before Christ comes. And then we have to apply it to an audience who has already known about the coming of Christ in the Gospels. And that's the challenge for us today. So let's talk, first of all, about the compassion of our Savior, the Messiah, who we know uh, today fully in a way that Isaiah never knew, longed to look into the things that we know today. We know as the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at verse one. You'll note here that Isaiah begins uh, this servant song with the words, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. So Isaiah here is speaking from uh, the perspective of, of, the, of the father uh, who delights in the son. Behold, my servant and If your version and your translation is like mine, my is capitalized and servant is capitalized there. My servant, God's servant, the servant of the father. The father is God. But notice that the servant is also here, as we're going to see going through this passage. They are right to capitalize servant here because this servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Messiah this is the Son of God, and we'll we'll see that more clearly as we move through this text. So here Isaiah speaks of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the advent of Christ. Sometimes in our culture we speak of this as advent season, and we maybe don't even know what does advent mean. It means the coming of, and here Isaiah is speaking of the coming of The Lord Jesus Christ behold my servant in whom I uphold my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So we are to behold the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would apply that even here to us as we look back at the advent of Jesus Christ. Historically, 2000 years later, we should still behold him. Even as Isaiah says, we should, that is, we should consider him. We should meditate on him. Those of you in the adult Sunday school class, we've been talking about meditation. We need to reflect. I hope you will spend time these next couple weeks meditating on the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meditating on the amazing fact of the Son of God becoming a man. Meditating on the very difficult truth that God could become man. How is that possible? How how is the hypostatic union even possible? It, It is it is a miracle in and of itself that the eternal son should clothe himself, though he's fully God, God of God, as we just said in the Nicene Creed. And yet man of man. Well, this is because Isaiah tells us he is the Messiah, the chosen one. And so he is unlike us in the sense that he has two natures. He's both God and man. Whereas we are but man, he is fully man like us, yet without sin. But he also has a second nature, being God. And for this reason, he has no sin and he is the son of the father. And therefore, we see that the Lord delights in him. Look at in the second line. He says, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. The father delights in the son and the son delights in the father. There is this mutual love that goes on in the inner Trinitarian council. The Spirit is not here mentioned in the second line, but He is in the third. Notice here, you have all three persons of the Trinity in a single verse in Isaiah, 700 years before the coming of Christ. You have, behold, my servant. My refers to the Father. You have the servant who is Christ, who is the chosen one in whom the Father delights. And then we see the third person of the Trinity, I have put my spirit upon him. The third person of the Trinity, the father, the spirit we know, proceeds, as we said again from the Nicene Creed, from the father and the son. And here the spirit abides on the son. Everything that Christ does is by way of the person and the power of the spirit. Think about the ministry of the spirit in the life of Christ, Christ was conceived as a man by how the not by ordinary propagation, but by this conception of the spirit's power in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Mary, who had never known a man who had never had a, a, a husband whereby the marriage was consummated. They were they were bound to one another as husband and wife by way of vows, but the marriage had not yet come to fruition by way of consummation and she is found to be with child miraculously by the spirit and then the spirit then not only conceives Christ within the womb but then the spirit is with the son in his years we we see that uh, Jesus is at 12 years old he is had to be at his father's house because he is learning At the feet of of those who teach the word of God, the, the word which is inspired by the spirit. Then when Jesus later as a man, as a 30 year old man, he begins his public ministry. And how does he begin? He begins by the spirit of the Lord anointing him. And as we saw last week, boys and girls, you need to understand that that Jesus is the anointed one. He that he is Christ and Christ means anointed one And the spirit comes down and anoints Jesus At his baptism. And why does he anoint him? Well, he anoints him for the office of being the Messiah and the Savior. Jesus' ministry is not a private ministry. He's not being anointed here as a private citizen or as a private believer in the Father. He is being anointed for this public work. And then, then we learn what the Spirit drives Jesus. Having anointed him at baptism, what does the Spirit then do? The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Mark tells us very plainly, this was not Jesus's bright idea. The spirit compelled him to go into the wilderness to face the temptations for us. And then Jesus opens with that sermon in his hometown. By what? By saying, as the text we saw last week, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he begins to preach and saying, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He performs the miracles by way of the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he is sustained by the spirit, even even his obedience to the end of his life. We see that it is the spirit who sustains Jesus on the cross so that as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the spirit who enables Jesus to fulfill his obedience, even to death, even death on that cross. So the spirit of the Lord rests upon Christ to the very end that he is able to fulfill his ministry. So we see here the that all three persons are involved here in this salvation of ours. The Father sends the servant, the servant is anointed by the Spirit. And then we read in the end of verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. And here is we we see that there's going to be justice and the, the, the nations should be understood here as the gentiles. Remember that back in Isaiah's day, the covenant was narrowly upon one nation, the nation of Israel. You had a few Gentiles here and there that, by God's grace, like Ruth, were able to come in, like Rahab. Uh, but by and large, the, the Gentiles are still in darkness at this point in redemptive history. They don't know the Savior. All they have is general revelation. All they have are the trees and the mountains and the rivers and, and the lakes and and. and humanity to look at and and, and that's it that they don't have the truth um, unless they lived in proximity to Israel and like Queen Sheba went and heard the wisdom of Solomon They they're cut off still from this truth but here's the promise that the, the, the father has sent the son who's anointed by the spirit to bring salvation to the Gentiles and you and I are here today at Covenant Presbyterian Church because of the fulfillment of this promise. You and I are sitting here today saved in Jesus Christ because of what, my, of what Isaiah said and foretold in this verse. The justice, the righteousness of God is revealed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for in it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then also to the Greek, to the Gentile. The right herein lies, the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the righteousness that is revealed to the nations is the righteousness of Christ that you can receive. And if you are without Christ, you are without the righteousness of God this morning. You need that righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. You go to him and you put your trust in him. He is the the way, the truth and the life and that no man comes to the father, but through him. Well, then let's go on. As we look at the compassion of the Messiah in verse two, notice here we see Isaiah telling us about this servant. He will not cry out or raise his voice. Now, you might think this strange, given that Jesus had a peripatetic ministry where he walked about and preached outdoors. And you say, how did Jesus do that without raising his voice? Well, that's not what Isaiah means here. When Isaiah says he will not cry out or raise his voice, that is, this guy is not a political agitator. This guy is not one who goes about uh, seeking to stir up uh, the masses. That is not what Jesus is about. Jesus is is uh, not an activist. He's not one with going out and doing protesting and bringing signs and carrying signs into the streets and. And trying to demonstrate in that way. We see that many times Jesus did the very opposite. When his brothers, you'll remember, were saying, hey, look, if you're really the Messiah, go show yourself. And, and he had to tell them, it's, it's not my time. You go down to the festival. And Jesus went how? Jesus didn't go in a demonstrative way. He went in a very private way, didn't he? He went secretly. People were wondering, is he going to show? Where is he? Is he afraid? What happened? The only time Jesus publicly comes into Jerusalem is at the very end, at the very last week. Only at the very end does he demonstrate in a public way in fulfillment to the prophecies of Zechariah that he was he was the anointed one riding on on a foal. So Isaiah here is saying when he says he will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street here. He's not talking about that the Messiah will not publicly preach in the streets or in the temple, but rather he—he's not just a, a political agitator seeking to stir up some kind of revolt. Um, Jesus's ministry is not of that method, and so Jesus ordinarily would tell people who he healed, "Don't tell anyone." He would—he would heal the leper, and he said, "You know, go and show yourself to the priests. Just do that as your witness. Don't tell anyone." And of course, they often disobeyed, making Jesus's ministry all the much harder. But um, Jesus, Jesus was not out there trying to uh, stir, stir things up. Look at verse three. We see the compassion of Christ in his sympathies, don't we? A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Not only is he not a political agitator, but he is somebody that is sympathetic to the plight of fallen man in a fallen world. And so he stops the beer of the funeral procession and says, come forth to the young man, the only son of a widow. And raises that man miraculously from the dead. He says to the man being lowered from the roof by his friends on his cot. Son, your sins are forgiven. And who can forgive sins? They, people think within themselves. And so he says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk. But in order that you might know I have the power to forgive sins. He says, take up your pallet and walk. It's easier to tell a man to be healed than it is to forgive his sins. And yet Jesus is saying, Uh, arguing from the lesser to the greater. If you think this is astounding that I can heal this man and tell him to take up his pallet and walk, how much more astounding when I tell him your sins are forgiven. It is because I am God. And I am compassionate towards those who are broken by sin. Many of you have experienced the miseries of a fallen world. You have experienced the crushing uh, and disheartening effects of uh, living in a in a world broken by sin, you've lost a loved one, you've lost a spouse, you've uh, had a child go astray, you've had some kind of crushing defeat or some kind of aspiration that has turned to ashes in your life, and you know what it is like to be at the very bottom. And notice how Jesus deals with you, a bruised reed, He will not break. Now, a bruised reed, boys and girls, is. You picture, you know, you don't tend to see these here so much, but maybe if you go down to the beach and you'll see the signs and they say, you know, leave the dunes alone, basically. OK, stay off the dunes. Right. Isn't that what they tell you to do? Why? Well, they want to preserve those dunes. Well, what helps preserve the dunes? The the dunes are often preserved by the reeds that are growing in those dunes. And here is a, a is a picture of for some reason, one of those reeds is bent over. One of those reeds is is bruised and it, it's falling over. It's not standing upright. And and the picture is, is here is that Jesus will not come by come by and say, you know, kind of kick you when you're down. Your this bruised reed is over. And you know what you and I would do as kids? We would take that bruised reed and we and we would pull it up. And because it's bent over and it's bent in our path, right? And, you know, we're walking on the path that leads to the beach and here's this bruised reed bent right over in our way. And what do we do? We grab it and we pull it and we yank it out as kids. And and here Jesus is pictured as one who doesn't do that. Jesus is one who gently seeks to straighten the bruised reed, to heal the bruised reed, to put it upright again. And then in the second picture here in verse three, a dimly burning wick, it's a it's a candle that it's just barely hanging in there for whatever reason. Maybe the wind is too strong. Maybe, you know, there's too much wax and the wax is drowning out the, the flame. Uh, there are a variety of reasons that the, 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 the wick can be flickering like that. And um, here he doesn't just snuff it out. It's a picture of a, these are pictures of people that are broken by the effects of the fallen world broken by maybe even their own sin who are bent over, who are barely hanging in there. And Jesus does what he, he shows them mercy and compassion. He does not allow them to be extinguished, but he saves them. And we see this in the gospels, don't we? We see people who are bruised reeds. We see people who are flickering wicks. We, we see the woman with the demon-possessed child. We see the man who's got the kid that throws himself into the fire and sometimes into the water. Uh, we see people, you know, the Roman centurion who's got the the uh, servant that he loves that's dying. Um, the, the the parents who have the uh, uh, Jairus and his wife who've got the child that is dead. Um, we see these bruiseries and we see Christ ministering to them in compassion. We see even, and I do believe that this is a part of the text, some... Uh, not all of our old texts have the ancient manuscripts, have the uh, story of the woman caught in adultery. But I, I do believe that that is a part of the Gospels. I'll give an apologetic for that in another sermon. But, but even there, um, what, what does Jesus do in, in that situation? He, he convicts the accusers of their hypocrisy, uh, of their own sins. Um, you know, this woman was taken in adultery and law of Moses says we should stone her. And Jesus is like, okay, really? Well, first of all, where's the, uh, it takes two for adultery. You know, where's the guy, you know, he knows this is a sham trial. This is a setup. And, and so what does Jesus do? Well, you know, he writes in the dirt. We don't know what he writes, but maybe it was the law of God and, and the spirit of God does the rest and convicts the people of their sin. And uh, and the wisest leave first <laughs> and and uh, and the least wise are hanging in there but finally give up, too. And and, uh, you know, Jesus turns to the one says, where, where are your accusers? Um, and well, they're gone. Well, hey, you don't have multiple witnesses. You can't I can't execute. You know, the trial's over. You're just you're, you're go and sin no more. And and, and so uh you know Jesus shows the compassion there. A woman you know, broken by sin. Christ will deal with you if you're convicted of your own sins and broken by your sins and you feel like there's no hope. You feel like there's nothing I can do to save myself. There's nothing I can do or say to make up for the things that I've done wrong in the past. But there is hope for you. There, There is a person that you can go to who does heal, who will uh, cause you to stand upright still yet, even in the day of judgment. No matter what, is in your past, no matter what you may have said or done or the relationships you may have ruined in the past by your sin, uh, there is one in Christ who can fix that situation and heal. And then in verse 4, we are told by Isaiah, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. The coastlands wait expectantly. Now, this is kind of a, a segue, uh, really, for I think the next section where we see the, the power and the light of the Messiah. Now, we, we've seen the compassion of Jesus, and now we're going to kind of see with that compassion the power and the light. And I think we need both if we're going to have a full orbed, proper theology of Christ. We need both. We need to see the strength, the power, the light of Christ, but also the compassion of Christ with that. It's not just strength. It's strength with compassion. It's not just compassion. Without strength or without power. You see, the the God of the liberals is a God of compassion, but a God of no strength. God can't do anything about it. Just sympathize with you. But the God of the Bible is a God of compassion and a God of strength who has the power to save and power to bring grace. And so in the second section, verses five through nine, you see here something of the, the strength, the power, the light of the Messiah. Look at verse five with me. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out. So it begins with the power of God seen in creation who spread out the earth and its offspring who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So Isaiah begins by taking us back to Genesis chapter one. But then Genesis chapter one is only an argument to argue from the strength of God in creation to the strength of God in redemption. That's the greater work. Redemption is the more powerful work than even the work of creation I mean, Jesus put it this way. What does it profit a man to, to gain the whole world, to gain the whole created order and lose his soul? The, the work of saving that man's soul is greater than the work of God saying, let there be light. And so Isaiah argues from verse five to the, the remainder, he goes from creation, then he goes to redemption The power and the light of God in redemption. He says, I am the Lord. I am the God who who said, let there be light. I am the God who set the stars in their courses and the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. But what does he say then? He says, I have called you though in righteousness. Now I'm going to talk about salvation. Now I'm going to talk about redemption. Now I'm going to talk about my power to save sinners. My power to save sinners is greater than my power to create. And what does he say? He he says, I Isaiah says, I will also hold you. Who's the you? By the hand and watch over you. Now, most commentators believe that the you here is the, is the mediator of the covenant. It's Christ. The Father will hold the Son by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. That is the Father. Through the son will save his people. The father will sustain the son. The son will depend upon the father and do what? Make a covenant with the people of God. The new covenant here. God will save his people through Christ. And notice here that Christ, the you here. First person singular, second person singular rather. The you here is a is, is Jesus, the singular You. As a light to the nations to open the blind eyes. Christ here is the savior of the world. The creator God has made a covenant with his people, a redemptive covenant, a new covenant. And in this covenant, he will savingly work in his people through the son, through the Servant, through Jesus. The Lord takes care of his people. And so we that which the father does for the son, the father does for us who are in union with the son. You are united to Christ. And so he extends his protection to you in this covenant. He watches over you through this covenant that he has made with Christ. And notice that the people of this covenant are the people of the nations. You see that in the third and fourth line. Of verse six, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. And and then it, it kind of follows as a light to the nations. The people in line C is the nations in line D. So that Christ would be this light. For these people, and who are these people? Well, these again, these are the Gentiles. These are the unbelievers. These are the idolaters. These are your relatives and mine. These are your ancestors and mine. Who in the days of Isaiah were lost and worshipping stones and figures of wood. And living in the futility of their own mind, our, our parents were lost. Our forefathers were lost. That's the sad story about our family. Long ago. But God shows mercy here. He promises grace. And the Lord would use His covenant to spread the knowledge of Himself to, to the nations. And then look at verse 7. Here are the verses to which Jesus appealed. You'll remember when John the Baptist was arrested. Notice here as a light to the nations to open blind eyes to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. And those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Now let me let me apply this to that story about Jesus and John the Baptist. And why does Jesus apply to Isaiah 42 about his ministry? You know the story. John the Baptist is faithful. He's telling Herod, you can't have the woman you have is your brother's wife. And you have her now. And you can't. That's unlawful. You're sinning against God. And you need to repent. Well, that didn't sit very well with Herod's wife. And so she has Herod put John the Baptist in prison for preaching that. It's a reminder to us that preachers are to preach to political authority no matter what the consequences may be. But here's the point. What was John the Baptist's role? John the Baptist's role was to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And now John the Baptist, having preached the whole the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is finding himself in prison. And he's probably thinking to himself, wait a minute, this isn't supposed to be. What's wrong here? Uh, My my theology and my reality seem to be crossing swords at this point. I thought the kingdom of God was coming. I thought the kingdom of God was, was about to break out here. And I'm finding myself... In the prison and maybe even maybe even John the Baptist is even thinking about this passage that speaks about the Messiah to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. And so how does Jesus respond? Remember, John the Baptist sends his messengers to go ask, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? (laughs) Was I right about you or was I wrong about you? And if I was right about you, why am I sitting here? And why aren't you doing something about it? Because Isaiah says you'll do something about it. Isaiah says you'll bring the people who are in the prison out of the dungeon. I'm in a dungeon. Now, you remember how Jesus answers? What does Jesus do? He answers with the rest of this verse, doesn't he? Go tell John, the blind are seeing, the lame... Are being healed, they're walking, and the poor are having the gospel preached to them. I am the light of the nations to open blind eyes and to bring prisoners out of the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from prison. Tell John, I am the Messiah. And then verse 8 I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I am. I am Jehovah, incarnate. I am the Lord. Think about this. God here, the Father, is saying, I don't share my glory with anybody else. And yet, what does he do? He has Jesus sitting at his right hand. Now, if that's not sharing glory with another, I don't know what is. When you take another person and put him at your right hand, What are you saying? That person has equal importance to you. The father here is saying, now he's not breaking his word here. This is my point. The father is not breaking his word here in verse 8. What he is saying, though, is that my son has the same substance as me. And therefore, he does share my glory and my honor and my power and my dominion. And it is not a violation of my being to put my son at my right hand to raise him from the dead and cause him to ascend to heaven and to sit him at my right hand is not to go against this promise that I will not share my glory with another. Because my son, though he be distinct in person, is not of another substance. The father and the son are one. In terms of their essence, they are both fully God as the spirit is fully God. And so it is, it is not a violation here of the father to share the glory with the son. In fact, it is through the son that the father receives more glory. Glorify thyself, John, Jesus prays in John 17. And the father speaks back to Jesus. I have glorified myself and will glorify myself through what you are about to do. So here we we see that something of the power, the dominion, the glory of God being brought together with the speaking of the Messiah, along with the compassion of the Messiah in the first point. And as a church, our duty is to preach the full Christ, the whole Christ, as Sinclair Ferguson has put it in a recent book. We preach the whole Christ. Of Jesus, not just the, the portions of Jesus that fit with our own philosophy. This is, again, the, the trouble with the liberals is they pick and choose the kind of Messiah, the kind of Jesus they want. We must preach the whole Christ to the whole man. We must preach the whole Christ in all his being, in all his attributes, uh, in all his offices, as prophet, as priest, as king, as savior, as Lord. Now, in verse eight, the Lord is reiterating his covenant name here. Notice here he says, I am the Lord. What is that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? That is Jehovah or Yahweh. And what is that name, boys and girls? Do you remember Do you remember where that name first appears to the people of God? It's in the burning bush. You see, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, what did they do when they called upon God? They said, oh, God, Elohim, Elohim. And 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 what happens with Moses when God enters into that covenant with Moses to rescue His people? It, God it kind of says, "Hey Moses, let me give you let me give you a secret here that even your fathers, the patriarchs, didn't really know fully. I got a name. I'm not just Elohim, God. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I am the Lord. This is my covenant name. And and." You, you, you are to call upon me now by that covenant name. It's, it shows a, an even closer bonding, a closer relationship uh, between God and his people now. And what is Isaiah doing? Well, he's using that covenant name and he's saying, I am the Lord. That is my name. That's my covenant name. That's the name I revealed to Moses in the burning bush. And I will not give my glory to another. But yet, what will I do? This same Lord will raise up a Messiah to save his people, to bring light to the nations and justice to the earth. And that servant will bring sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. And he will enter into my glory, even though I don't share my glory with another, he will enter into that glory because he shares the same nature as me. And then in verse 9, you see, behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. What is this new thing? Well, this new thing, I think, is the new covenant. I will do this in the new covenant with my son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, by virtue of his incarnation. God becoming man, living an obedient life, dying as a substitute for sinners, being raised bodily from the dead. He will he will accomplish salvation for not only Israel, but for the nations that are described here in this passage. This is how the, the those who sit in darkness will see a great light. This is how people who are turning and giving their worship to idols that God will not share his glory with will come to worship God alone. How much more should we behold Jesus Christ? If we are told here in Isaiah 9, and if Isaiah's people in his day are told to behold, verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. How much more should we behold maybe this even Christmas season? Can I ask you a question or two? How often do you think about Jesus, really? How often do you how often do you think about him as you go about your daily work? As You go about your daily life. Do you think about Jesus at Kroger? Do you you ever think about Jesus as you drive to work? Do you think about Jesus while you're doing the dishes or mowing the lawn? Do you think about Jesus when you wake up in the morning? Do you, do you think about him before your daily duties? Do you have any thoughts of him before you go to bed? Or Do you just kind of go to bed? Do you behold Jesus? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never beheld him. You say, Pastor, I, I, I almost never think of Jesus. Um, maybe it's because you're not really yet a Christian. You see, the Song of Solomon tells us that Jesus is for us. That lover of our soul. And once you behold him by faith, you keep wanting to behold him. The the more you think about him, the more lovely he appears to you in in all his person and all his attributes and all his works. And you want to think about him more and more. You know, if Isaiah could tell his original audience, behold. The former things, the things of God. And we know God has done a greater work that we can behold with all the clarity of the New Testament. You know, the Bible does say to whom much is given, much is required. You know, if if the psalmist can say, behold, I meditate on your law day and night and we have something better than the law now to meditate on. We we have the one who fulfilled the law. We have the one who obeyed perfectly. Let me move on to the final part here, and that is our response. Verses 10 to 13, sing a new song, sing to the Lord a new song, sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and dwell on them. Notice here, what is the call here? The the, 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 the it, it is a, a call to these nations. The Lord's servant is going to bring this good news of Great joy to the nations and the nations are not supposed to go ho-hum. The nations are supposed and expected to respond with what? Adoration, praise, worship. People who live on the coast. People who go down to the sea. You guys from California there. You know, you folks from Florida, you know, you Savannah types, Hilton Head, all y'all. You know, or to praise the Lord, you islands. But also let the wilderness. Those of you who live in the sticks, who come from the sticks, whether, the, whether they're mountain sticks or stick sticks. Uh, and those of you in the urban areas. Verse 11, let the wilderness and its cities. Basically, everybody is in view here. You know, whether you're a native of Boston or Kansas or California or China or Central America or Africa or anywhere in Europe or wherever, urban, rural, we're to lift up our voices, it says here. Let the settlements where Kadar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Sila sing aloud. We are to respond here. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Can I ask you another question? How's your joy? Are are you singing to the Lord as a means of of glorifying Him? Are are you so grateful for the salvation you've been given that you can praise the Lord? That That you are a person of joy? That you are a person who rejoices? Yeah, it is easy sometimes to be um, muddled in the in the problems of the world. And I don't want to minimize the trials and the tribulations. I hope I made that point in the first point uh, when we talked about the compassion of Christ. But at the same time, we can allow ourselves, I think sometimes allow our trials and tribulations to obscure this aspect that we are to be praising the Lord. We We don't weep as those who don't know the Lord weep. Even in death we we do not we do not mourn the way unbelievers mourn. There is, there is a joy sometimes even in the midst of sorrow and tears. We can still rejoice. We still have reason to sing at Christmas time, even if these weeks aren't all that pleasant to us. Let them give glory to the Lord we let and declare his praise in the coastlands. And then it says, why? Well, because the Lord's a warrior. And we're going to win. It may not feel like you're winning right now in your life. Um, but we we are winning. And we are going to win. Look at verse 13. I'm going to close with this. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. He will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Jesus, you know, is not just going to win in the future. We're going to win in history, too. We're not going to just bypass history and win simply in the future. Now, don't get me wrong. There is tremendous suffering as we win. The Puritans used to say um, we we conquer through suffering. And, they, and I think that's the biblical balance. We 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 take up the cross of Jesus, which is not easy. We do sorrow, we do mourn, we do grieve, we do suffer, we do have setbacks, we have disappointments, we, we have failures personally. We have we have attacks of Satan, and we have we are wounded uh, by fiery darts, and we we have scars from past battles. But we're winning because Jesus is the warrior. And he's going to conquer the nations. And so it's not mere triumphalism. But it is a biblical optimism rooted in the reality that this world is hard and difficult and we're in a spiritual fight for our lives. And we're not just winning in the future. We're winning now. Amen.